0: You've always been looking for something. That something that sets you apart. That something that makes you more than the person you're living as. More into the person you were created to be. What others see as mundane, you see as magnificent. You catch a glimpse of something new and it becomes something significant. It's that something extra that keeps you up at night. The hours pass by while everyone else sleeps. You dream. You imagine. You envision what your life might be. What if you were born for more? There's got to be more than just this. I want to be used. That's your greatest wish. The demand for you has always been true. You are gifted and passionate. Add God's purpose to this and watch what he can build. Now, what would you do with what you've been given? Will you put it into motion? Will you take on the responsibility? Will you follow after the calling God has placed on your life to be fulfilled, to be engaged, to cast out all fears, doubts, and uncertainties, to stand strong, to rise up, to become... Who you were created to be? Who is the prodigy in you?
1: Well, good evening. It is great to have you all with us tonight. We are beginning a brand new series tonight and on to the weekend called Startup. Where we're going to look at Jesus. And some of the uh, wisdom he gave to how we can start new patterns in our life. In 2018, uh, every new year is a chance for us to think about new patterns and new starts. It's also a reminder not to make too many promises uh, that we're not going to be able to live up to. So I want to give you just a little sampling of what happens when you make too too big of a new year's resolution. It doesn't work out maybe the way you hoped. Let's watch.
0: Our New Year's resolution. My New Year's resolution is...
1: This year, my resolution. So my New Year's resolution... This year. This year. This year. This year. I'm going to eat healthy. Flax seed. Five cheeseburgers, please. I'm going to drink less.
0: May I buy you a drink? No, thank you. Can I buy you a drink? <laughs>
1: I'm going to get a pet.
0: Daddy. Bye-bye! I'm gonna study more. Let's do this! (laughs) I'm gonna be more patient.
1: Oh, good time! A lucky day. Yeah, but you know, I was reading this thing with the uh, autonomous cars, right? The ones that drive themselves. Gosh, this little thing is a little stinker.
0: I'm gonna spend more time with my family. Hi, Mom! When are you getting married? Bye, Mom! Gosh, I just put my little finger under there, but (laughs) I almost got this guy. Bear with me a second. We're gonna learn how to bake. Oh. Mm. This is gonna be fun. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm gonna learn Chinese. Ni hao ma. Ni hao ma. What the? Sorry, I gotta get this going here. Pick up the diamond. I'm gonna learn to paint, I'm gonna read more. Oh, what the oh, wizard, Harry? No way. Wes, is it done yet? I think so. Great! I can't wait to see it.
1: Well, we've all been there. We've (laughs) made some resolutions that lasted, you know, two minutes, uh, two weeks, at best, I think, sometimes two months. What I want to look at is how there's a specific uh, topic in the Bible. It's called grace and God's grace and how it can give the, the energy and the environment for God to be able to craft and do some work in you. In fact, it's been kind of fun. maybe you heard people now said my wife creates this craft, so i 've been watching her put this together, and so sometimes on stage we 'll have like a potter or we 'll have a blacksmith, and so it 's been fun to sort of watch a, an artist at work putting things together and It reminded me a little bit of in the Bible it talks about how we are god 's workmanship, that God is crafting us together. And there are certain ways in which instead of making resolutions we're going to break, we can instead put ourselves in a place where the hands of God begin to put components into our life to bring beauty into our life in areas that maybe we can't do ourselves, even with a whole lot of effort. And one of the metaphors the Bible uses when talking about grace is that of snow. In fact, it says that when you really understand the main message of the Bible, all your wrongdoing, all of your mistakes, all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your insecurity can be covered, and it can be white as snow. You know that feeling when you see the first snow of the year? Especially here in Ohio, where sometimes it's like, are we ever going to have the first snow of the year? We used to love, we had a house, my wife and I, down in Georgia, and it never snowed in Georgia. And we had our first snow in Georgia. We had this beautiful house that had this, like, gigantic porch out front, 10 feet, 15 feet deep, 40 foot long. And when it snowed, it was just beautiful, we would run out, like the two times it snowed, and we lived in Georgia. We ran out to the street and just took this picture of our house covered in snow. The moss was gone. The stuff, uh, the leaves that I you know, hadn't washed off from the top, you know, looked beautiful again. The the spots on the roof that weren't quite had the right color were suddenly you know white as snow. It reminded us of new beginnings and fresh starts. Or I've been a skier, so I take, I have a 20-year-old, uh, an 18-year-old, and an 8 and a half year old son, and so I take them skiing once a week at Perfect North. And so I love skiing, and I've been doing that for about 15 years, but I never have really skied on snow. because so if you've been to Perfect North, it's like, you know, ice with some dust on top. And so about four years ago, I was in Colorado, and I happened to be there the day that it snowed. And we are going skiing the next day. And, and I'd heard people talk about fresh powder before. I really didn't know what that meant. Except that when I fall, it, it wouldn't hurt as much. So I'm at the top of the mountain. i just skied 12 inches that day. And I start skiing. And it is like magic. And if you've skied before, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, let me describe it. Because I, I'd heard people talk about it. But as I'm skiing, I'm actually skiing under the snow. Like your skis sink down about two or three inches, and as you're skiing, the snow is whisking by as if you're actually magically skiing through it, not on it. And there's a sense of adventure, you're looking at the majesty of the clouds, you're looking at the beauty of God's creation, and there's just this connection with fresh powder to something fresh, and something real, and something new. And then, of course, we had, not a blizzard, but the cyclone bomb, or whatever it is we've had the last couple weeks, that they're calling it, and... So my son quinn he 's eight and a half he has special needs, and so part of having autism is he loves sensory experiences so he 's been skiing between my legs for about four and a half years now, and he 's finally tall enough that my back doesn 't break. I can actually ski in this position now. Well, when the snow came down, my wife went outside and got the big old um, cup full of snow and brought it in, put it on a big tray on the kitchen table, and Quinn is just in heaven. I mean, just the, the mystery of what is snow, and he's putting in his mouth, and we're putting like, you know, uh, juice on it, so we're like making our own like Hoven snow cone, and there's this adventure, and there's just watching him discover it, and watching him dig into something that he doesn't hardly ever see, In the same way that snow gives us that sense of fresh starts, and new beginnings, and restarts, and covering of old things, God says the Bible has the same thing. It's not ultimately about do's and don'ts and rules and and all the stuff that gets confusing. It's about a covering of fresh powder. And so I want to talk tonight about the power of fresh powder. And specifically how grace is a fresh powder and like a craft, God can if you will sort of hold your your life up to him and allow him to place things into your life, he can bring incredible beauty into your life. But in order to do that, there's going to be certain components. We're going to look at some teachings of Jesus from the book of Luke as we're studying that for the next uh, couple months at our church. Some of the specific things Jesus says we can start, start putting certain components into our life that God can use to bring about love and peace called shalom Forgiveness, growth, and even a higher purpose. So what would it look like for us to do that this year? For To ask God to begin to put some things into our life that could grow us or connect us to a higher purpose? Well, let's take the first one. The first one, what if this is a year that we ask God to put a new type of love? We need to start loving in a new and fresh way. What if we did that? Here's what Jesus says. It's a really fascinating principle about how to love better. Jesus says, I will love as much as I've been forgiven. He tells a short little parable like this. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. Now one owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50 denarii. Now when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. $500 forgiven, $50 forgiven. And then he turns to the people and he says, Tell me, therefore, which of those two will love that man more? Who's going to love that man more? The one forgiven 500 or 50? Jesus waits and the audience turns to him and says, Well, Simon says, I suppose the one whom he forgave more will love more. And Jesus says to him, You have rightly judged. See, many of us think, oh my goodness, I've got to get my act together in order to be connected to God. I've got to have, you know, perfect life, perfect Christian, perfect, perfect whatever. Jesus says the opposite. It's when you realize how much you can be forgiven, you're able to love more. It's not trying to pretend that you don't do the things you do or haven't made the mistakes you've made. When you realize how much God can forgive you for, that becomes the motivation to love him more. Think of this example. So you come home uh, this evening and you find me standing at your door. Like, what is Chad doing there? Well, hey, listen, I came over just to say hi. You left something at the event. But right before you got here, um, somebody came by and you had a bill that you owed and I just want you to know that I paid it. Now, how are you going to feel toward me? Thankful. How thankful? What did you pay? right? That's going to determine how grateful you are. So he said, well, well, tell me about the bill. I said, well, it was actually apparently the post office. You put some mail in today, and you missed a stamp, and so the bill was you missed a stamp. So I went ahead and, you know, spotted the the 50 cents, Uh, and so I paid for your stamp. So now you're not going to have to resend that. How grateful are you? "Eh. Appreciate it. What if instead I said it turned out the IRS showed up and you know those three years of back taxes that you've been sort of worried about? Um, Apparently they were due tonight and I thought you've got a lot on your plate. I went ahead and forgave and, and wrote a check and paid off all three years of your IRS back taxes. All that stress, all that pressure. Now how grateful are you? Thank you, Chad. Bless you, my son. Bless you, right? And so you actually love much when you're forgiven much. And the secret to learning to love is to learn how much God's forgiven you. And often the Bible and grace and love, they don't feel like weighty subjects. They feel like theoretical subjects. And Jesus is trying to take something theoretical like forgiveness and make it weighty so that it can create the the weight in your life to produce better love. I'll give you an example. I hung out with my best friend Rick Hogue when I was in sixth grade. And we used to go over to his house because these gigantic mounds of snow would come down on the farm. And so we'd build homemade igloos. So we're digging in, scraping it out, digging in, scraping it out. No matter how big the igloo was, we always thought it could be bigger. So we're digging a little bit further. And Rick would be like, oh, I don't think it's going to collapse. It's not going to collapse. You're fine. You're fine. Digging a little bit more. Oh, you'll be fine. And I'm, I'm all the way in. My feet are sticking out the hole. I'm all the way in, digging through the snow. And you don't think a snow is very weighty, right? look at the so wonderful little thing. The I am ankle deep into my igloo. And apparently I dug a little too much. And the walls could no longer hold the ceiling and all of a sudden i am belly flopped on the ground with my feet sticking out and i literally have snow collapsed on me and i remember all those readers digest stories i read about drama and real life when i was in high school and college i'm going to die here this is it this is my big moment and i remember my friend rick he grabs me by the feet and he's dragging me out help me rick help me rick You saved my life today, buddy. When you realize just how much you've been forgiven, suddenly grace and forgiveness go from being a theory to being weighty. Wow, God would forgive me everything I've ever done, cover all of my shame. I'm no longer defined by what I've done or what's been done to me. I'm no longer defined by what I've done or not done or what was done to me. And that becomes weighty. I had a woman in my office this week. She said, her name Sue. She said, Chad, could you, could you help me? And I said, sure. And she said, I'm trying to figure out how to forgive some people in my life. And I said, sure, I'd love to help you. So we talked for a little bit what it means to be a real Christian and what, what grace means. And she's like, I've never done that before. And and she got a chance to invite God's grace into her life for the first time. And she's like, wow, I never knew what this meant. I'm going to church my whole life. And she goes, well, h- now, how? I said, now you got the fresh powder. You, you got grace in your life. you got the weight of what God has forgiven you for. Now we can talk about whether or not you can forgive mom and dad or, or your brother and sister or brother-in-law, whoever it is. And as we're talking, I said, I took this parable, and Jesus expands on it in another passage. He says, think of it this way. One time there was a king, and the king was walking through town, and he spots a guy who was in $2 million. And that guy walks up and is like, oh my God, $2 million. I don't know what happened. I'm not going to be able to pay this back. And how many chances I get, I'm never going to be able to pay this back. I don't need more opportunities. I, I need mercy. Help me, help me. Well, you know what? You didn't pay it. You made a contract. You're going to head to debtor's prison. That's it. Please have mercy on me, O oh king. And the king looks him in the eye and says, You know what? You're right. You're never going to be able to pay this back. It's all forgiven. It's all forgiven? It's all forgiven. Fresh powder. And grace has been placed into his life, the weight of forgiveness in his life. And he's on his way home. And as he, this forgiven, $2 million forgiven man, is on his way home, he spots his servant, who owes him two cents. He says, hey, listen, ah, I'm going home to see my family. I'm no longer going to be indebted. I really need that two cents to start my new life. And the guy's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to be able to pay the two cents. doesn't matter how many opportunities I have. I'm never going to have that chance. Well, listen, you made a contract. You said you would do this. If you don't do it, you're going to be sent in debtor's prison. And the guy says, I can't pay it. I don't have any means to pay it. And that man turns to the servant and says, well, that's fine, let's call the police. And he throws him in jail. And Jesus ends the story for us to contemplate. Why would he tell such a weird story? Because he wants you and I to understand and to wrestle with, we are the man who the king is offering to forgive $2 million worth of whatever we've ever done, whatever we are doing, and whatever we will do. Past, present, future, wrongdoing. When you realize just how much the weight of God's grace and forgiveness, the fresh powder he wants to pour into your life, the new starts, the fresh beginnings, the pressure, Then you look at what your brother, your neighbor, your sister, your husband has done to you. And it's still bad, right? You can tell the whole story why it's bad. and it wasn't sensitive, it wasn't appropriate, and he did do it again, right? That's all true. But now you go, that's really two cents. It's annoying two cents. It's a reoccurring two cents. It's a frustrating two cents. But it's two cents compared to the two million dollars that I've been forgiven. And that fresh powder gives you the engine to forgive. Not just I I ought to forgive, I should forgive. That'll last about a week. I've been forgiven much, therefore I can love much. So that's the first piece we want to ask God to put into our life. I want to learn how to love much as I begin to understand that I've been forgiven much. The second thing Jesus goes on and talks about is how to return to God what he's given to you as if God's putting just another component in your life, another piece of beauty into your life, what it means to return to him, to understand his heart for you, and to place that into your life. So what does that look like? What does it mean to have that? Look what it says here in the passage. He turned to this woman, so he's just come in the door, and there's a woman there who had a a history of being a, a woman in the red light district. And many of the religious people can't believe someone like that came to the party and Jesus invited her. And they can't believe that this woman with this kind of reputation, as Jesus walked in, she falls down. She begins to wipe his feet and and cry on him. And it's embarrassing. It's not protocol. It's not appropriate. It's not proper. It's not very religious. So they confront him on it. And they say, Do you see this woman? Do you know who that is? And Jesus turns to them and says, do you see this woman? I entered your house with dirty feet, which was common in those days, and you didn't give me water to wash my feet. You didn't provide any hospitality to me. But she, this woman, with a reputation, has washed my feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet. Since the time I came in, you didn't anoint my head with oil. This woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, and he goes back to his theme from before. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, yeah, they're forgiven. For she loved much. To whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Now, do you think religious people have less to forgive than that woman from the red light district? It's not at all his point. This woman is aware of her need for forgiveness. The self-righteous, haughty, arrogant religious person has got more pride and arrogance and unthankfulness. They've got plenty to be forgiven, but they're totally oblivious to it. They think they're better than other people. And instead of needing forgiveness for it, they're proud of it. So, the secret to returning to God the love and developing the heart for God is to understand just how much He wants to forgive us. So, your, your, your love to other people is actually a returning of love He's given to you. There's a really interesting phrase He uses here about she did not cease to pour her tears upon Him. I was listening to a friend, he's become a friend who recently found out that he, his wife was ha- having an affair on him. And his heart was just broken. He, he knew he wasn't a perfect husband, but he had no idea things had gotten that bad. And he just had felt the shock of the affair. And his friends were saying, how are you, how are you even keep going in the midst of this? How are you not getting bitter or angry he goes, well, I am angry and I am upset, but how are you bringing God into this? How are you letting God shape or put things into your, the vase of your life? And he brought this passage. I'd never heard it before. He says, you know, in Psalms 56, it says that God has a vial and he collects your tears. And I have wept a lot of tears of grief, of what could have been, what should have been, of rejection. Of being discarded. And I'm realizing that God says, He is so near me, He's collecting my tears. He then went on to say that often women in this culture, in this day, would collect their tears tears of joy in great moments, tears of sadness. And they would keep the bottle of those tears around their neck. And when it came to a wedding, Part of the wedding ceremony in the Jewish days is that the woman would take the vial of her tears and give that to her husband as if saying, I'm giving you my heart. These are all the tears, the highs, the lows, the ups and the downs of my life. I'm pouring out my heart to you. That was common in some of the the practices in the Old Testament. And sure, this woman Mary was probably literally crying, but also she poured out her tears, probably was Mary took off that vial she'd kept around her neck, and she gave her heart to Jesus. All of her highs, all of her lows, and she washed his feet with her heart. She returned her heart to the one who held her heart. That story was so powerful for me that I wouldn't know it, but a month later, we'd have a funeral in this very room. And that funeral would be a woman in her 40s who who lost a husband, who went up because he wasn't feeling well to go to sleep a little bit early and and wouldn't return. And as we were walking down the aisle here with their children and now this man's widow, we talked at the funeral that day in this room about the power of a God who collects our tears. And I don't know if you need a God of comfort, a God who empathizes or sympathizes, not a God who's got a bunch of rules, a God who wants to enter into your pain, but that's what Mary found this day. She allowed God to place into her life not just forgiveness, not just grace, but the beauty of his heart. What's another component we can put in? Well, Jesus goes on, and he makes some incredible claims. And I think the third thing that we want to place into our life to sort of turn the lights on in our life, to, to allow grace to come alive or to light up in our life, is to start marveling or doubting Jesus' claims. Jesus would rather have us doubt his claims than to minimize his claims. Many times what Jesus says is so shocking, we minimize it, we say, he couldn't have meant that. But He did. Let Jesus be as radical as he is, and then either marvel at it or doubt it. Jesus wants you to wrestle with it. If you're not sure if you believe in the Bible or Jesus or God, that's great. That's why we create a church. Most people don't believe everything I believe about Jesus God in the Bible. We create environments for people to ask those kind of questions. And let me show you what Jesus does here. He's still talking about forgiveness, but now he's, he's asking people to either marvel or doubt his claims. He says he says to her in this moment, in this place, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this? They're shocked that this guy would say he could forgive sins. Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Not your good works, not you you fixed your whole life up. You believed I would forgive you and that has rescued or saved you. Now, this doesn't seem quite as radical to us. I want to try to show you how radical it is. So imagine, I'm going to give you both a Western argument and an Eastern argument. We'll start with Western. Jesus turns to a woman. And this woman, let's just say she's gossiped about a friend. And Jesus says, hey, when you gossip to your friend, I can forgive you of that. If you don't think that's odd, let me put it in a different scenario. Let's take uh, my brother and I growing up. My brother and I get mad at each other. We're wrestling with each other. And my brother punches me in the face. And I kick him back. And Jesus shows up. He looks at me. He doesn't say, Chad, you need to forgive your brother. Or, Ryan, you need to forgive Chad. That would make sense. I can forgive somebody who's kicked me. And, and somebody can forgive somebody who's, who's hit them. Jesus says, when you hit your brother, I can forgive what you did to your brother. As if what I did to my brother had anything to do with Jesus. Jesus. It's as if Jesus is claiming in that moment, when you do anything wrong, it's ultimately against the very source of goodness, which is me. He's claiming to be the very source of goodness, that whenever you do anything wrong, it's not just against that person, but it's ultimately an affront against him. It's a claim to be the very source of goodness, to be God Himself. Let me give you another way of saying it. The Easterners, if you asked an Eastern, remember, Jesus is Jewish, in a Jewish culture, at a Jewish time. And if you asked a, a typical person living during his day, can somebody be forgiven? They would say, of course. But here's the difference between that day and our day. Where do you go to be forgiven if you're living during Jesus' time? It's only one place you're forgiven. It's temple. You've got to travel to Jerusalem. You've got to go up to temple. You've got to grab a sacrifice. There's a place for forgiveness and there's a way to get forgiveness. You can't be forgiven here at a party. You can't be forgiven here at somebody's house. The only place you can be forgiven is there. And Jesus is making a radical claim to that Eastern world that wherever he is, forgiveness can occur. That instead of going through all of the motions of religiosity that were happening in Jerusalem, that if you got close to Jesus in your home, at a party, at a friend's home, you could be forgiven. And Jesus wants you to wrestle that he's claiming to be God. You can doubt that. I don't think he's God, I think he's kind of crazy. That's okay. Jesus would rather have you do that than to say, I don't think he's really claiming to be God, because he is. I can forgive when you punch somebody else in the face. And you can be forgiven not there, but here. He makes a lot more radical claims. But part of allowing God to craft you, to form you, to shape you, is beginning to understand who is Jesus, investigating that. Is he really God? God? Or just a good moral teacher? Because a good moral teacher, you might say, well, Chad, you sound like a good moral teacher. You mentioned some Bible stuff today. What if in the middle of my talk I said, you know, thank goodness, my marriage, Beth and I have been married 24 years, and I finally she's understood uh, that she needs to worship me. And so we, uh, it's finally 24 years of marriage, and so what I like to do is when I come home from work, sure, it's nice to have dinner, sure, it's nice to have a nice kiss or whatever, but what I, what I really enjoy is, is I sit down on the couch and say, all right, it's now time for worship, And what I mean by that is, it's now time for you to worship me. Now, when you hear that, do you say to yourself, Chad, that's a good moral man. No, you're going, that's a problem. I don't have a degree in psychology, but that is a narcissist. (laughs) Don't minimize Jesus' claims. He's either far more or far worse than you think he is. He's claiming to be God, the one who can forgive sin. He either is that, and he allows himself to be worshiped, Or he's something far worse. And he wants us to marvel. Two more things. What else can we add to our life? What other components could we add to our life to have that fresh powder come alive? Well, part of it's finding a grander vision for your life. It's interesting how many women in this passage are very, very successful and begin to find not just forgiveness, but they find a grander purpose for their life. They've got success, they've got influence. But something about Jesus calls them to something deeper, something more, from success to significance. It starts out, says, as It came to pass afterwards that Jesus is going from village to village, preaching and telling people about the kingdom of God, this new kingdom, this, this grander vision for their life. But as he began to talk about that, look at how many women began to be drawn into this grander vision, a man who treats women with kindness and respect, unlike the men in the, in the day. We have Mary Magdalene had got some deliverance in her life. And Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, I'm going to come back to her in a second, Joanna of Chuzza, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. So these are very wealthy people, most of them, got a lot of success. And in their success, they found something in Jesus' message that, that moved them to a grander vision. That my life can be more about, more than just accumulating, more than just upgrading, and just to show you how significant this is, this is Joanna here, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's steward. Now, Herod is probably the wealthiest man who's ever lived, if you calculate by inflation, even today, even with uh, what happened with Amazon last week and all the money that the CEOs made. Herod was still wealthier than him by inflation. I'm going to show you how in a second. And his CFO, his steward, Herod's steward, his CFO's name is Chuzza, and his wife, Joanna, She has been to all the fancy parties. She's been to all the successful events. She's met everyone there is to meet. She literally is the wife of the CFO of the richest man in the world. Let me show you how rich he is. Let me show you how much influence he has. Here's just two of his palaces. I've been to both of them, got a chance to go to Israel. This is Masada. And Masada is a beach home on the Dead Sea that has 11 swimming pools built before 6 B.C., 6 B.C., And Herod had invented a fully functioning sauna. I got to walk through it. A sauna in the middle of the desert. There's no water. He had enough servants that water had to be brought up to fill his 11 swimming pools dug out of the solid rock. One of those water reservoirs at the top of Masada you could fit 11 full-size school buses into. We walked down into them. This is just the front door on the left-hand side of one of his palaces. And his CFO's wife... had access to all of those things and enjoyed them said but i want a grander vision i want more than just the parties and the people and the influence and she found something that jesus spoke about a life of purpose and meaning and other centeredness would take the things she loved now and even call her to use those things to a grander vision a life of a new type of kingdom And he's got another uh, palace. He's got several of them. Here's another palace I visited called the Herodium. Up on the top picture, that is a man-made mountain. He built that mountain one bucket at a time. So if you can imagine looking at that picture, uh, there in the middle section, that those are cars and people. And he wanted a castle that could look down on Jerusalem from about 40 miles away. So he built a man-made mountain. Jesus, we think, was probably in Jerusalem, and he could see that mountain When he turned and said, if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard, you don't need very much to begin a journey with God. If you just have a little bit of faith, smallest seed you could have, you can move mountains. And he literally, from that place up in the Mount of Olives, which is covered with mustard seeds today, was pointing to a man-made mountain. And said, you can move mountains to glorify yourself like Herod did or you can move mountains to serve other people with a grander vision for your life. And Joanna was captivated by the idea of giving her life to not a man-made, self-exalting mountain for herself, but a faith-based mountain to exalt God and his work in her life. So finding a grander vision, here's our last thing. What's the last thing we could do to have God sort of build into our life the pieces we need, to shape into our life, to craft us into who he wants us to be, to show us how to incorporate fresh powder into our life? Jesus goes right from that story, that passage, into another account about start plowing. Start plowing. When a great multitude gathered around him and said, how how do we begin this life, this this purpose-filled life you're talking about, this this grace-filled, fresh powder kind of life let me tell you a story. Once upon a time there was a a sower and he was sowing seed. He was scattering it. Some fell on on the wayside. It just sort of died. Didn't go anywhere. Some got into some thin soil. It grew for a little bit, but then it sort of died out. Others grew really quickly, but then the weeds came and choked it out. But some of those seeds fell on good soil and it grew to abundance. What kind of soil are you? Tonight, if God is casting out seeds of how much he loves you, how much forgiveness he has for you, how much he wants to be in a relationship with you and and carry your tears, what kind of soil do you have? Will you be the soil that, "Eh, I'll try it for a little bit. Eh." Will you let it sink deep? Will you let him craft your life? Will you let him build into your life? Will you help him work in your life? Because he says, if you will, you will get a crop that's a hundredfold. It's not a hundred times. It's a hundred multiplied. So it multiplies itself. Think of it cubed once, then cubed again. Cubed a hundred times means a hundredfold. If you want that kind of spiritual legacy and impact in your life, it begins by saying, God, I need to look at my life and ask myself, am I, being, I, I can't grow anything, but I could be good soil. When my wife and I were in Israel about f- five years ago, we took a picture next to one of those farms. They're always outlined by the rocks. You can see the line of the rocks. And part of what Jesus goes on to talk about is part of creating good soil is learning how to plow your own heart so that when God begins to work or wants to work, it, it, it can work in the soil and you've got to take the rocks out. And so the guy who was leading our team asked us to go and and get down on our hands and knees and begin to pull out the rocks and throw the rocks out and and to think about in your own life the rocks of of habits you have that your grandparents had and your parents had, how you handle conflict or how you handle money or, or, or how long you hold a grudge. And some of those rocks have been left in your field for generations. And if you don't pull those rocks out, they're going to be left in that field for your kids and your grandkids. Unless you say, God, I need the grace, I need the power, I need the fresh powder in my life to get down and pull this rock out. It is not easy for me to, be able to handle conflict. It's not easy for me to encourage. It's not easy for me to let go of this kind of grievance. But, God, I've seen how it destroyed my grandmother or my dad, and I am not going to have that rock in my field anymore. And you throw it out. By God's grace, give me the power, God, to dig out these rocks. We dug a lot of rocks out that day, six, four years ago, whatever it was. We returned to Israel two years later. There was a pile of rocks from all the different groups that have come through that field. And that field is now able to produce a hundredfold more crop because all the rocks have been removed. And we stood before the group and we each shared what that rock had represented years earlier. For some it was depression generational depression. I'm going to really engage with God helping with my depression. For some it was anger. For some it was lust. For some it was the inability to, to know how to encourage their kids or know how to speak words of affirmation. But each person that day said, I want my my old field covered with grace. I'm not embarrassed to bring out my mistakes. I'm not embarrassed to bring out the things I've done wrong. But I want God to do a new work. I want that hundred fold crop in my family and I want God to craft and put together what he's been doing in my life not only just for my sake but for my kids sake and my grandkids sake it's the power of fresh powder so what if you think about all the things that have led to where you are the, the things that been pushed into your vase that haven't been beautiful things they've been difficult things and ugly things and shameful things What if you began to ask God to take his scarred hands that died on a cross, as the Bible says, because he loves you, and you allowed Jesus to take his scarred hands and begin to pull out the difficult things, or maybe even take the difficult things and change them and modify them and turn them into beautiful things. What if this was the year you just picked one thing? One of the five things we talked about, said God. I don't want to commit to doing a bunch of stuff. I want to commit to receiving a bunch of stuff. I want to commit to understanding some deeper things. Pick one. God, I want you to teach me about your forgiveness, to place unconditional forgiveness in my life that I can start loving in a way I never have before, to understand grace in a way that I can start returning to you what you've given to me and returning to others. God, I want to start marveling at who you are rather than being scared or just respecting you and keeping my distance. I want to start finding a grander vision for my life. And I want to start doing the dig plow work of getting the stuff out and saying, God, could you turn this difficult thing and this ugly thing into a beautiful thing? What if this year that was our simple prayer? God, I'm an empty vase put into my life the things I need to be the beautiful thing you've made me to be. Let's watch. maybe that's a prayer maybe you've never prayed before it's just simple it's really talking to God maybe you want to pray and just say God I need you to make me new this year I need you to make me into a beautiful thing I need you to help me believe that I am a beautiful thing let's pray together maybe you just want to say to God in your own words God take my difficult things and turn them into beautiful things Jesus teach me how much I've been forgiven that I can love and marvel much And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here tonight. If you want to continue our journey on startup, you're more than welcome to join us for the weekend. If not, uh, we really appreciate you being here tonight. And thanks to my wonderful hand model, my wife, who did the video for me. So thanks so much.